Thank you very much, Jan. Well, this is a very unusual topic for an economist to attempt, but it's surprising that it hasn't attracted more attention because the threat of, of social instability lurks behind much government economic policymaking, both in China and in other countries, especially authoritarian states. The Chinese leadership has viewed social instability as a threat both to the um, political order and also to the maintenance of rapid economic growth. And the, the leadership has publicly expressed its concern about maintaining um, social stability. According to Susan Shirk in her book, China, Fragile Superpower, the term social stability or social instability appeared 700 to 800 times a year in People's Daily uh, over the previous decade. And the official term mass incidents, um, the reports increased from something like 9,000 in 1993 to 180,000 in 2010. So these concerns about social stability may well have molded economic policymaking in, in, during the reform period. The government's overriding policy objective was rapid economic growth. So for a quarter of a century, up to about 2005, rapid economic growth was seen as the one true path to maintaining social stability. But China's economy was greatly transformed as a result of this rapid growth, and Chinese society was transformed, so that new threats appeared as a result. So the government introduced a secondary policy objective um, in order to meet these new threats, and that was the achievement of a harmonious society. Now, there are methodological difficulties in attempting to analyze a topic like social instability. First of all, we've got to measure this elusive concept, and then we've got to measure the effects of its hypothesized determinants. I'm going to draw on the CHIP survey, which contained information about attitudes and perceptions, as well as the normal sort of information that you'll get from a household survey. Now, the questions I'm going to analyze are not the ideal ones for the purpose, but I think they are informative. So my approach is to examine the determinants of subjective well-being. So the reasoning here is that unhappy people, people who um, are dissatisfied with life, are more likely to be socially discontented than are happy people. And that the causes of unhappiness will provide pointers, will make suggestions as to the sources of social instability. So we can judge the validity of this assumption later on once you've heard the evidence. Now the CHIP survey of 2003 contains questions about subjective well-being, both in the rural sample, the urban sample, and the rural urban migrant sample. So what I'm going to discuss 
actually has solid research foundations, although I won't really be displaying them. I have published half a dozen papers about subjective well-being in China. So the estimated happiness functions um, do have high explanatory variable, uh, value. They do have significant coefficients which bear plausible interpretations and they display regularities which are to be found in many happiness studies around the world. So the dependent variable that I analyze is um, how happy are you nowadays? <laughs> and it could equally be how satisfied with life are you nowadays? And the, the, the results are very similar. Now the permitted answers are very happy, happy, so-so, not happy, not at all happy. <laughs> Don't know. And the explanatory variables are individual <coughs> variables, um, household variables, and community variables. So we can express this dependent variable as a cardinal value. Give um, very happy a value of four down to not at all happy a value of zero. Um, I'm going to examine the potential causes of social instability under four headings. First of all, cause one, income and its change. Now, happiness rises with income in the cross-section, and this is true in China, in all three subsamples, and also in every other country where happiness um, functions have been estimated. But whether or not we instrument for income in order to get the causal effect of income, the effect is surprisingly small, both absolutely and by comparison with the other determinants of happiness in the equation. Now we found that current happiness in rural China is sensitive to the perceived change in income over the last five years. A positive effect if a person had experienced a rise, a negative effect if the person had experienced a fall. And this confirms research by Lina Song on urban China, finding the same relationship. And current happiness is also sensitive to the expectation which people have about their income over the next five years. The bigger the expected increase in income, the higher is current happiness. And this is true in all three of our subsamples. So to summarize, income is good for happiness. Also, income growth, whether it's perceived past income growth or expected future income growth, that's good for current happiness. And this is in line with current government thinking that income growth provides security against, protection against social instability. Now, between 1990 and 2010, household income per capita rose in real terms by about 8% per annum. That's allowing for re-weighting between rural and urban areas. But um, Dick Easterlin, the father of happiness studies, or the, the, the economic father of happiness studies, uh, in a very recent paper, finds otherwise. This is based on several time series which are available for, for China. And he found that there was no increase in average happiness between 1990, 
and 2010. And the answer that they put forward is in terms of the profound socioeconomic changes which accompanied that economic growth and which I'm now going to examine. So, course two, inequality. We know that income inequality has risen dramatically in China over that period, and it may pose a threat to social instability. It's been rising among households, between regions, and between rural and urban areas. Now, it's partly due to increases in the rewards for productive characteristics. That is human capital, ability, effort, entrepreneurship, risk-taking. But it's also due to new and growing forms of discrimination and segmentation by gender, by ownership, by enterprise profitability, by region, by social connections, guanxi. And it's also due to inequality to access, in, in access to opportunities. So the sources of inequality which are not based on productivity might in particular arouse feelings of distributional injustice. And the research also shows that relative income is important to happiness. Happiness is increased by one's own income, but it is decreased by aspirations. And aspirations are based on the income in society. And this is one reason why happiness has appeared not to have risen over two decades. Now, aspirations depend on a person's reference group, that is, the people with whom one makes comparisons. In China, we've got evidence that reference groups tend to be rather narrow. Um, the reference groups of rural people tend to be within the village. They make comparisons with fellow villagers. And in the, in the urban areas, it seems that reference groups are within the city of residence. So we find that rural happiness is highly sensitive to one's position in the village income distribution, and that um, urban happiness is sensitive to one's position in the city income distribution, the city of residence. Now, migrant households who are located in the city, uh, um, settled in the city, but still have rural hookah, had the lowest mean happiness of the three subsamples, which is rather inconsistent with standard migration theory. Now, this is partly because the migrants, these are migrant households settled in the city, the migrants had transferred their reference groups from the village to the city. And of course, they were at the bottom of the city income distribution. And it's partly because they are subject to various forms of economic and social discrimination within the city. Our proxies for discrimination all had negative coefficients. Now, Martin White, a Harvard sociologist, conducted a national survey to make a sociological study of Chinese attitudes towards inequality. The majority of res respondents reported that, indeed, inequality did threaten social instability. But he concluded 
that the Chinese people were not concerned about inequality if it was based on merit, effort, or risk-taking. Because that sort of inequality appeared to offer people opportunities for improvement. But inequality based on unfairness in access to opportunities, that was generally disliked. So cause three, insecurity. We know that economic insecurity increased sharply in the late 1990s as the state-owned enterprises were um, reformed and many of their workers became redundant. Now, Easterlin, in his study, found that although life satisfaction was about the same in 1990 and in 2010, between those years it followed a U-shape. It was the lowest about 2000 or just after. And the interpretation which they placed on it was that this was a period of the highest urban unemployment, that is, the highest degree of insecurity. Also, our analysis of the 2002 urban sample found that happiness is reduced if, when you hold everything else constant, the respondent had been made redundant. Also, happiness was reduced by our proxy for the probability of future unemployment. If we could identify people who are likely to become unemployed, was their happiness lower than that of the others? Yes. So cause for governance. China still has a semi-marketized economy involving a lot of state intervention. And this has a useful economic function. It provides the policy instruments for China to achieve and maintain a developmental state. But it's also a breeding ground for rent-seeking and corruption, especially at the local levels. Corruption is a potentially serious source of social instability, and this has been recognized publicly in speeches by, by the leadership. Two pieces of evidence here. The World Bank produces worldwide governance indicators, which rank countries according to certain criteria of um, their success in governance. Um, China does well on some aspects of governance, but not well on corruption, and it's getting worse. In 1996, 42% of countries had a better score on control of corruption, but in 2009, this proportion had risen to 63%. And respondents in the um, urban sample of the TRIP survey were asked what was the most serious social problem and corruption was widely mentioned. So much of the current social unrest is due to citizen dissatisfaction with local government actions. Corruption, illegality, arbitrary and excessive taxation, neglect of pollution, confiscation of land without adequate compensation. And the system of governance creates opportunities for abuses of this sort because the accountability of local officials is so weak. China relies on top-down accountability rather than bottom-up accountability, that is, pressures from below. But top-down accountability is difficult to implement because 
well, it's difficult to implement if the agents are better informed than the principal. So does social instability threaten economic growth? The Chinese economy has been in a virtuous circle of high confidence, high investment, high growth, high confidence, and so on. But can that virtuous circle be maintained? Now, the reform leadership, intent on maintaining rapid economic growth, faced a classic principal agent problem because there is centralized political control but decentralized economic management. Now, it solved the principal agent problem in three ways. It set up an incentive structure by means of personnel policy, rewarding officials and punishing officials according to how well they pursued government growth objectives, fiscal decentralization, which gave local officials incentives, and powers of patronage, which arise out of the hierarchical system of permissions and refusals. So by these means, as reform proceeded, China became a developmental state. By that I mean one in which the state gives overriding priority to the achievement of rapid economic growth and pursues active policies which succeed in that objective. But investor confidence is important for maintaining that developmental state. Now there is an international research literature on the effect of social instability on growth. There are several pieces of cross-country um, evidence that social instability can slow down growth and that this effect can come through a fall in investment. So far, China's degree of inequality and degree of corruption have not prevented rapid economic growth. Most cases of social instability have been localized and uncoordinated, and these don't have um, an effect on, um, so, uh, on um, investor confidence. But the threat posed by <coughs> social instability is probably growing because people's aspirations are rising as society becomes more sophisticated, better informed through the development of the internet, more capable of coordinated action. Again, the internet may play an important role there. So the slowdown of the economy may in turn create more social instability. So there's an aggravating interaction, potential interaction between social instability and a faltering economy altering growth rate. So let's turn to the potential cures, bearing in mind those four determinants that I mentioned. First, income and its growth. Now, once you introduce objectives other than economic growth, this raises the issue of their substitutability or complementarity. Do the cures of the new problems require a slowing down of economic growth. That is, do we now have to transfer resources away from capital accumulation towards improving health, social security, environmental protection, and so on? By contrast, does rapid economic growth provide the revenue and the resources 
that make it easier for government to address these new problems that are the result of growth. Turning now to inequality. On the, on the one hand, rapid growth has so far helped to increase inequality. On the other hand, future growth can be predicted to reduce inequality as unskilled labor becomes scarce and relatively expensive. Work with which Li Xia and I have done suggests that labor is, unskilled labor is going to become progressively um, scarce in the second decade of the 21st century. And as that happens, so there will be an incentive to innovate with new methods of production. And of course, income inequality will fall as the wages of the relatively unskilled rise. So economic growth, this priority given to economic growth, might turn out to be the most important means of reducing inequality in China over the next few decades. Now, the recent harmonious society policies have concentrated on reducing rural poverty, that is, squeezing up the bottom of the income distribution. Lisha has already addressed these, so I'm going to concentrate on policies to squeeze down the top of the income distribution. And one such policy instrument is direct taxation. Personal income tax is found to have very little effect on urban income inequality. It accounted for only 7% of government revenue in 2010. It represented 0.01% of household income of the first urban income decile, 0.12% in the sixth decile, and 2.1% in the 10th decile, the, the, the richest decile. So there's a good deal of scope for making direct taxation a more important source of revenue and also for making it more progressive. Now, it's not clear whether regional inequality is a source of social instability because, as I said, um, reference groups tend to be rather narrow. But one reason why regional inequality appears to have risen concerns the fiscal relationship between central government and provincial governments. Now, rule-based transfers to the provinces tend to be equalizing. More goes to the poorer provinces. But the two-thirds of transfers that are specific are not equalizing. These are subject to negotiation, and they require matching funds, or they give rise to rent-seeking. So central government could increase the importance of rule-based um, transfers, general revenue transfers, and reduce the importance of specific transfers. But in addition, there could be more specific transfers solely or preferentially to the poorer provinces for development-promoting expenditures. But policies are also required to equalize the primary distribution of income, that is, factor income. Now, there are institutional arrangements in China which divide China society by hukou status. But this creates unequal access to various income earning opportunities. 
jobs, human capital acquisition. Now, some of that inequality can be reduced by allowing rural urban migrants to settle in the cities and to compete on equal terms with urban residents, urban hooker residents, um, for jobs and for education and other facilities. Um, this might have to be done gradually because of the uh, threat that a rapid change in policy might itself create social instability. But some of the inequality is more deep-rooted and long-lasting, and it requires attention to educational policies. The policy, uh, policies are needed both to reduce the rural income difference in the quality and the quantity of education, and also the inequality in access to education within rural China, which is often based on the income of the household or the income of the community or the income of the parents, or sorry, the education of the parents. Now, the abolition of school fees, which took place six years ago it, for compulsory education in rural China, has helped to equalize educational opportunities, but policies are needed to deal with the differences in the quality of compulsory education and also with differences in access to higher ed school education and to higher education. So, cure three, insecurity. Now, there are good historical and institutional reasons why China's social security system remains highly segmented. When the old system collapsed, a new system had to be created. So social security, like unemployment insurance, healthcare insurance, pension schemes, were slowly and incompletely taken over by broader groups, normally based on the locality or on ownership sector. So in urban informal workers and rural urban migrants remain poorly covered. And social security provision in China, in rural China, is still limited in coverage and quality. Perhaps the exception is rural healthcare, which now is nearly universal, but it's still quite basic and it's not portable, as Yahweh mentioned. So there is an enormous amount of scope for equalizing access to social security across regions between rural and urban areas and within rural areas and within urban areas. So, cure four, governance. China's system of governance certainly has economic advantages. It helps to maintain the developmental state, which in turn achieves rapid economic growth. But the weak accountability that I've referred to makes it open to rent-seeking and corruption and profit opportunities for the elite. So, governance reform is likely to involve gradual change within the present system, and there are two main ways forward in order to protect against social instability. One is reform of the incentive system facing officialdom. So, so there, there is a need to supplement the incentives to promote growth with incentives for other objectives which will help to promote a harmonious society. But we have to guard against misuse. Um, there can be confusion when um, people are trying to pursue multiple tasks. 
just think about the British National Health Service and what targets for particular um, objectives did to that. And there are incentives to misreport, especially when the criteria become um, difficult to measure. So, for instance, um, an attempt has been made to introduce rewards and punish punishments for officials who um, permit social instability in their locality. But that gives a perverse incentive for the officials to, by one way or another, coercion or whatever, to stop that um, dis expression of discontent. And then secondly, it's important to strengthen accountability and transparency at all levels in the bureaucratic hierarchy. We have to supplement top-down accountability with more bottom-up scrutiny. That is, pressures coming from below. Greater accountability can come from having a more independent judiciary, an independent and powerful anti-corruption um, agency, more open government, more public participation. So to conclude, the analysis that I've tried to go through very quickly suggests possible policies to reduce social instability. One, policies to maintain um, the incentive structure that produces rapid growth while reforming it to place more emphasis on objectives other than rapid growth. Two, policies to reduce the inequality of income, placing more emphasis on inequalities that can't be justified by economic efficiency or merit, in particular such inequalities at the top of the income distribution. Three, policies to reduce inequalities in the provision of social security by reducing the segmentation that exists in their um, provision. Uh, four, policies to reduce the inequalities in access to income opportunities by reducing the segmentation in access to education and the segmentation due to the hookah system. Five, policies to reform the system of governance by strengthening the accountability of officials. Thank you. <laughs>